Winning is the ability to fail and make a quick recovery. And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today, we speak to Hollywood psychiatrist and author, Phil Stutz, who is well known for his client list boasting top writers, actors, producers, and CEOs. Together with Barry Michaels, Phil is co-author of Coming Alive, Four Tools to Defeat Your Inner Enemy, Ignite Creative Expression, and Unleash Your Soul's Potential, and The Tools, Five Tools to Help You Find Courage, Creative, and Willpower, and Inspire You to Live Life in Forward Motion, a New York Times bestseller. In this week's episode, he talks about the common problems faced among the rich and famous, advice for those facing their fears and how to overcome failures, a few tools such as the reversal of desires, the dynamic evaluation, the merit and power system, and even gives wisdom on how to build long-lasting relationships. There's that and many more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. Today, you work with high-performing people, celebrities, CEOs, etc. What's it like at the top for some of your clients? They have certain unique both problems and privileges. The one thing they don't like but they're addicted to is attention. Because attention in L.A., may, how much attention you're getting from people from the public, etc. It's a marker of success or the lack thereof. You know, So the classic joke about actors is, is they'll come out of a restaurant at night, they're finished eating, there'll be all the paparazzi, you'll be around. And they'll say, get the f*** away from me, blah, blah, blah. The, the whole thing is very nasty and unpleasant. However, if the same actor leaves a restaurant and there's no paps out there trying to snap their picture, they'll actually feel that they're slipping. So it's a peculiar situation to be in. You know, they need that attention, but they also resent the attention, obviously. So that's a fairly, I think, unique thing to Hollywood. A lot of the other things, though, are not really that different. How do you treat that? You know, they don't like attention, but then yet they're addicted to that. No, no, they like attention. They just don't like being intruded upon, which is obviously impossible. I'll tell you exactly how I deal with it, which is I tell them they're f***ing babies. They will never, ever get enough attention. You just can't get enough. It doesn't work that way. And then there's the tools and attitudes and stuff to free them from their addiction, basically. And you can't teach somebody to do that. They're going to have other problems in their lives. One obvious one is in terms of trying to be married or have a relationship, because many of them will demand, especially if an actor has been on a film, and this is true for directors, too, who are probably the worst of all. I call the job description of a director is it's an infant leading an army. And that's exactly how it works. You have all these people around, and their only function is to please you, get your drink of water, whatever it is. You know, you, you get it automatically. And it brings out the worst in, in people, as, as far as I'm concerned. So that's one. That's narcissism. And it, it tends to alienate other people, break up relationships. The best way to say it is, it, and probably the worst part of it is when there's a failure, when there's criticism, when there's a bad review, if their wife looks at another guy in a restaurant, and anything that hurts their feelings, it's very hard for them to uh, deal with. However, if they can't deal with it in the, in the long run, they can't take very many risks you know, in their career. I've had some big actors. I'll tell you a quick story about this. Obviously, I can't tell you who any of these guys are, but there's a guy, he, he would, if he was alive now, he'd probably be 80 or something, 85. He never made it as a big star. He was a star. He, he could be in his own movies and perform. You know, you know his name, but 
he never got to the real star level. And the reason he didn't get there is because he wouldn't audition. Nobody knew that he wouldn't audition except me. It was like a secret. And he, w he was high enough up where they say, okay, he doesn't want to read. You know, the big stars don't, they won't read for anything. But this guy wasn't that big of a star. He really needed to read to get the uh, roles that he wanted. And he was too f***ing scared. What he was scared of was auditioning, not getting the part, feeling this inferior, he'd never work again, etc. So he would just avoid it altogether. That, that was the most extreme case I've seen. But a friend of mine who's an acting teacher said, when somebody pops, you know, let's say they're 28 and all of a sudden they get famous, what? The first thing they always say, you know, you say, well, the money is great and whatever. And usually they'll say, well, that's nice. But the thing I love about being a star is I don't have to audition anymore. So that's both a problem I have to deal with. And it, by the way, it's also a problem with younger kid actors who aren't, they're not famous yet. The fear in an audition keeps them from getting into a flow state. So you might see potential, they might be okay, but they don't have that real capacity to let go and risk everything. The reason is is the fear of criticism, you know, the shrinks call it narcissistic injury, someone bursts your bubble or whatever. So that's one huge issue. Pro you know, it's probably the most common issue. Fear, I imagine, is, is common with almost everyone. What do you tell people when they say, I'm too afraid to audition or I'm too afraid to do this? What's the single best thing someone can do to sort of run towards fear? I call it the philosophy of death. You have to develop a taste for a sense of purpose, a goal to get rejected, as strange as that may seem. Because if you think you can avoid it, then like this guy, he couldn't even walk into the room and audition. If you think you can avoid it, you can't. And when it comes up, you realize you can't avoid it. Then you, you're completely paralyzed. The way I call it is, if you want absolute certainty that I know I'm going to get the part, I know they're going to love me, whatever. If that's what you want, you end up with absolute terror. If you want absolute certainty, you end up with absolute terror. And the reason is there's no absolute certainty in any case, in anyone's life. You know, if you're a star or whatever, everything is blown up bigger and it's in public. But there is no certainty about anything. And if that's what you think is going to save you, once you realize it's not, then you don't know what the hell to do. So it's a different way to say it is these issues of fear and uncertainty have to become goals that are higher, that are more important than getting a given part. Or for the layperson who's not an actor, they have to be more important than whatever whatever your particular specific goal is in life, you know, whether you want to get good grades, whether you want to have a successful business, a good marriage, be a good, it doesn't matter. There's got to be something higher than the results. If there's nothing higher than the results, your fear is, is going to eat you. Now, is that clear? Yeah, yeah. So I guess to follow up on that question, you have to set higher goals for this actor who was older that was too afraid to audition. What would you say his goals should have been? Well, conceptually, philosophically, he's got to ask himself, do I want to die on my deathbed and, and feel like I did give this my all, that I didn't take the commensurate amount of risk that nobody really knows how talented I am? So just on a conceptual basis, the goal is to be able to reach your potential. You know, it sounds trite, but it's, it's very, very important. But on a technical level, there's a couple of tools that help for that. And the, the easiest tool, the most popular tool is called the reversal of desire. Here's the premise of it. The normal desire that everybody has is to avoid 
pain, or if you want to say it's to avoid being afraid, avoid situations that scare you, even thinking about them. So the tool is called the reversal of desire. So in, instead of the normal desire to avoid, the reversal of desire says, I'm going right into the fear. Now you say, well, that sounds masochistic or stupid, but it's not because something we call the law of fear, and it goes the following. If you approach fear aggressively and go right into it, and that includes the circumstance that frightens you, fear actually shrinks. If you avoid fear, if you back away from it, if you run away from it, if you avoid the situation, your fear gets bigger. Okay, that's probably worth saying again. So fear gets smaller when you go right into it, and fear gets bigger if you try to avoid it. Most people are kind of on the edge of realizing that, but they don't want to really accept what I just said because, first of all, they have no idea what to do with that information. And second of all, they're just too scared to even start the process. Now, so the tool's called the reversal of desire. So you're going to change your desire from avoiding to going right into fear. And it's just three steps. It's very simple. At first, it's going to seem strange, but as you practice it, you'll become more familiar with it. The reason I say it's going to seem strange at first is you have to take your fear and place it outside you in front of you, as crazy as that may sound. Think of it like a, a fear cloud, and you're afraid to break into that cloud. The whole thing is too intimidating. So what you do is you say to yourself, bring it on intensely, and you feel that fear cloud constellate itself right in front of you. Step one. Step two, you go right into that cloud. You go as deep as you can into the fear cloud, and you say, I love fear. And then the final step is you're going to feel the fear is now behind you. You've penetrated through it, and the fear is going to push you forward. And you say, fear sets me free. Now, so those are the three mantra-like things. Bring it on. I love fear. Fear sets me free. There's a trick to it. Each time you say one of those phrases, you want to physically feel yourself moving forward. Sit on the edge of your chair, concentrate, and imagine yourself going right into that fear and then coming out the other side. So, and the beauty of it is it takes about seven seconds to do it. It's, it's, it doesn't take very long. So you can do it over and over and over again. And believe me, you're a lot better off using that tool and, and breaking through the fear and ending up saying fear sets me free than you are worrying. Because worrying is a complete waste of time. We should go into that also as part of this philosophy. If you draw a horizontal line on a piece of paper, Above the line is a space that we call the thinking space. And below the line is a space. And when I say space, I mean it's, it's a psychological state of mind. Below the line is called the workspace. Now, the thinking space, all you're doing is thinking. Now, do you know what that... So let's say you're facing an audition and you're scared. Now, do you know what the thinking space is good for? Do I know what the thinking space is good for? Good for nothing Yeah. in this context. So below the line is called the workspace. Now, in the workspace, there's only two things. One is action. In this case, it will be actually showing up and taking the addition. And the other thing are the tools, like the tool that I just uh, mentioned. So most people like to walk around thinking and worrying. It's a complete waste of time. It does nothing. Usually, it actually makes things harder. But it takes work. That's why it's called the, the workspace. 
to keep on doing the tool over and over and over again. But what happens is, see, for most people, they've never had any means of overcoming fear in real time. They have no idea how to do it, and they don't believe it's possible. So once they do it a couple times and they can feel their fear abate, even if it's just 15, 20% less, everything changes for them at that point. And usually that's when they want to they learn a lot of other tools. And Because at this point, it seems possible to change their inner state. It seems possible. And that's the whole game, because most people feel it's impossible both to change their inner state and also to accomplish what it is they want in life. But what would you say the biggest fear young people try to avoid? That's a good question. The classical thing for a younger person is, who am I? Where am I going? How do I get there? Is it the right decision, etc.? And that's probably actually as it should be. Does that go away? I think it goes away for some people. You know, it's, it sounds trite when they say pick something that you love to do. But And most people don't even have the opportunity to do that, even if they know what it is. But if you can get move in that direction, you have a, a lot better chance of it going away. You know, life's complex. You can't... You know, you can't just summarize everything so simplistically. However, there is something for younger people where they're not sure, you know, which way to go, what career, that will help them. And it's called the dynamic evaluation. It's very simple. Dynamic evaluation means if you're thinking of making a decision, particularly a big decision, like what we're talking about here, you know, your whole career and everything, before you make the decision, you want to put yourself in motion based on your weaknesses, what weaknesses have to be overcome. So just as an example, right, like somebody's thinking, I want to be an entrepreneur, and he's a little bit shy, and he, you know, he has a little bit of problem approaching people. So dynamic evaluation means put yourself in motion first in your own life, not necessarily having that much to do with what your career choice is going to be, but you want to free yourself up a little bit and put yourself in forward motion. That, that can include Maybe asking a girl out on a date that you, you don't feel particularly secure with, as as one example. It could mean uh, traveling, if that's something you, you've avoided up until this point, etc., etc., etc. But it's called a dynamic evaluation because you want to put yourself in a dynamic position first before you make the decision. And it, probably for younger people, because decisions in general are such a big deal. Let me tell you two things. There are two paths towards to success. One is called the merit system. And the merit system is it's just what it sounds like. In other words, it's I go to Stanford and then I get my master's in business, you know, at Wharton or something. Yeah, yeah. The whole trip and then I go to Goldman. That's a meritorious path now. And it's, there's nothing wrong with it, but that path and it's, it's a path that's been trodden by a zillion people before, and it gives you the illusion of certainty and security. That's the path to mediocrity. There's nothing wrong with it, but you've got to be honest with yourself. That's the path to have a mediocre but safe life. And it's very competitive, and I don't put the people down that pick that. However, most of the people, if you're going to bother to listen to this podcast or God forbid, talk to either of you guys. There are a lot of people that don't want that. And, and I think they're waking up to it more and more and more. So then you have the other system, the opposite, which I call the power system. And there, in the power system, there is no safe path. There's no pro forma, predefined way to become successful. 
if somebody has a feeling for that, you know, playing outside the lines, especially when they're young and especially if they don't have kids yet, I really encourage them to live like that just to see what it feels like. What are some things that people can do to live in the power system or train themselves to be in the power system? They need to develop a sense of entitlement that is not given to them by another person or by a position. Usually the best definition of it is I'm driven by my instincts to make certain decisions and do certain things. And I don't fully understand why I want to do this. And I certainly can't kid myself that it's an absolutely secure pathway. But it's almost a sense of being compelled to do that, which includes, you know, taking risks, obviously. Now, if you want to live like that, especially when you're younger, it's not going to just happen by itself. And that's why one of the things I train younger people, I mentioned a little bit before, is Learn to take smaller risks systematically. It might sound funny, but even when you go to a restaurant, order dinner in 30 seconds. And if you think, well, wait a minute, that's not what I really want, don't change your order. If you ordered something and it's not really what you want, you don't enjoy dinner, that's called a consequence. In other words, you have to pay. Now, you may say, well, what are you talking about? I'm paying for an expensive dinner. That's true, but you're getting into the habit, and that's all of these things are habits of being willing to go on instinct and then take the consequence. So being able to do that is a big part of this power system, number one. And again, you're giving yourself permission to do this. If if you need somebody else to give permission, then you're sliding back into the merit system. So the second one I call personal outreach, and that's just part of gaining information about the world and what it involves reaching out to as many people and as many different kinds of people as you can. Now, if you are in the position of you're fortunate enough and you're smart enough, obviously interviewing and talking or forming relationships with older people is fantastic. And, you know, kids don't understand this, but if you get a guy who's 60 years old, for the most part, he's done, you know, whether how much power or money he's going to get. It's actually more fun and more interesting for him to help you. That's why if you have the instinctual courage to do it, it's a great idea to do so. It's almost like you're expanding the level in which you exist. And I'm a big believer in that. Again, you know, I call it street knowledge, where knowledge you gain from people who are actually involved in a market or involved in whatever it is, it's going to be more helpful to you than anything you can get by reading, studying. It's not that that isn't good as well, but... This information is alive. It's hot off the platter, however they say it. What type of questions would you recommend somebody young asking a 60-year-old? See, people like to be vested. Older guys like to be vested in younger guys. And for them to be vested in you, they have to know your story a little bit. So it's always good to present them with a problem. It can be a, a problem, a lifelong problem or issue for you, or it could be something that just came up. But see, the fact that you're defining a problem for an older guy already says, oh, he wants to hear what my answer is. And you'd be surprised. A lot of these guys, even ones that run big companies, they have a thousand employees. It's very rare that someone will actually ask them for for something like that. And mostly the reason is people don't think that the guy want to do it. He won't even want to. But this is, it's a certain flattering thing. If you're going to do that, then what you have to do is if he gives you an idea, let's say you want to raise money and he says, well, go over here, these these type of people, they have money, whatever. It's very important to do what the guy suggests, unless you think it's ridiculous, and then get back to him and reflect back to him that you actually tried what he suggested. Because, see, at that point, 
and hopefully it'll work at least a little bit. But at that point, he becomes vested in you. The third thing is is pleasure. You need to find a way to feed yourself in that sense. And that's completely different for each person. But the one thing that all the different ways of getting pleasure um, are the same is that it shouldn't have anything to do with what you're doing, you know, what your business is or the business you're trying to start. You need to, it's, it's very important spiritually to just have a certain amount, even if it's just a half hour a day. That is just for you. It's it, it's not for an outer result. So those are some of the indications. You know, to really get into it, it's it's a little bit different for each person. I, I will tell you this much though, because I gave this thing at Yale, which it was about entrepreneurship, because they have some kind of an institute or something. And the whole thing, it, there was only three points in it, which is point one, how to take action when you're afraid, which we talked about. Point two, what's the most dynamic way you can deal with failure. And point three is how do you function with relentless forward motion? And the reason I picked those three is, see, those are similar to starting a a business, creating something out of nothing. It's very similar to any other act of creation. People don't realize that. And if you think of it that in those terms, then you want to get better and better at creating things. And everybody's a little bit different, but these are the laws, the, the rules of creation. So... The first one, you have to take action, I think is, is kind of obvious, but you know there, there are parts of it that aren't so obvious, Me- meaning taking action isn't just exposing yourself to a new situation or finding an investment opportunity, whatever. Taking action, particularly if it scares you, changes your relation to your unconscious. This was, this was when I realized that action breeds wisdom. You know, you think wisdom comes from studying and all that. And it, it's okay, you get something from it, but it's it's action itself. See, action puts you in the middle of the world. I'll tell you, I'll explain to you what my first experience with this was. I was it was 82, I don't even know if you guys were born yet, probably not, right? Not yet, 10 years. Okay, so here I am, 1982, I'm in Los Angeles, I'm ill. I only knew two people in the whole city, neither of which were in my field. So I, I didn't have any patience, zero, nothing. And I was starting to get pissed off because I was spending my savings, which I, I didn't appreciate. So I started to like flail around, you know, try to visit an internist or a lawyer, somebody maybe who could give me a referral. And nothing happened. I still had, no, I still had zero patience. And then it was like I had an epiphany one morning. I, I remember I was sitting in this, I was depressed. I, I hadn't even pulled the shades open. And it was like this angel sat on my shoulder and said, Every morning, approach the person or the situation or the phone call that's most intimidating, that scares you the most. And somehow, and I'm a very shy person, but somehow I was able to do it. I'd just sit there. I'd look at all the people I had to, to call, and then I'd pick the one that scared the shit out of me. Most of the time, the, the person I called didn't help me at all, but it didn't matter. When, once I started to do that, I began to get more ideas do this. I I found this group of people in the valley that I could kind of do workshops with, whatever. There were so many ideas that eventually I actually couldn't even do them all. And within 90 days, I had, I would say around 15, 18 patients, which is impossible. It's theoretically impossible. Anyway, the point was, it's not the point of, you know, I got the patients. The point was the ideas the more every time I took an action, I would break down my barriers, basically to my own unconscious. And the, the unconscious likes that. It, it knows it's going to give you an idea and it wants to see you act 
on the idea that it gives you. Most people don't do that. The unconscious says, well, fuck you very much then. I'm out. Let's see if you can do it yourself, which usually you can't. So this is a very important thing, you know, for younger people to understand. And most of the ones, like, like the two of you, that are going to be, you know, wildly successful, most of them already know this. But it's the ones that have trouble that don't really understand. And there's a word for that. It's called the intelligence of the will. Not the intelligence of the brain or the mind. It's the intelligence of the part of you that can take action, particularly scary action. So that's a good thing to know, I think, for, for younger people. How do you think young people should deal with failure? That's clearly something that's holding people back is the fear of failing. So what would be your advice to someone who just failed? Failure stands out there like this intimidating, paralyzing, self-destroying force. And um, basically, you have to change the meaning of failure. There are various aspects to that. But aspect number one, we're going to fail. And we know we're going to fail. When a failure occurs, we have a protocol for dealing with it. We're trying to make failure meaningful. It's very, very important. Now, in order to do that, so the first thing I told you is you want to anticipate it. I read this article about some guy in the Forbes 400 or 5, I don't know, this guy, I think they said he was worth like in the 40s or $50 billion. And they asked the guy, what was the most important model that you developed for business? Because this guy had succeeded in a couple of businesses. He said, I learned how to fail. And then the interviewer says, but at some point you must have succeeded, right? And the guy says, I don't give a shit about success. All I care about is failing. And I know it sounds crazy. And so he was saying, I want to fail, and that's what actually satisfies. Now, it sounds crazy at first. As you get older, it makes more and more sense. The fear of failure destroys people. And let me give you a little brief description of that, which is think of it as there's a winner's circle, and the winner's circle are people that basically either have never failed or have overcome their failures to such a degree that they feel completely safe because of the people I treat. Like, you know, I treat guys that are, have net worth, not a, a lot, but, you know, they might be worth $5 billion. So people come in here, or a famous actor, and they'll say, where the f*** is this winner's circle? I've won two Academy Awards, and I'm not in the f***ing winner's circle. I, I feel totally insecure. Where is it? The reason that they feel this way is because the winner's circle doesn't exist. It's very important to understand that. It, the winner's circle doesn't exist. So everybody is in the loser's circle. They just don't know it. Now, success in business, success in creative endeavors, success in a marriage, all of it, it all depends on, because again, everybody's in the loser's circle. It depends how you deal with losing. And one thing is the same with all different kinds of losses or failures, and that's it makes the person feel that there's something wrong with them. Or if you want to say it the other way around, if they were really successful, really smart, whatever, there would be no failures. Now, now, nobody in their right mind would say that's true, but unconsciously, that's how people feel. So they have a couple of failures. They, they've been stained, you know, it's like the scarlet letter or something. I'm a loser. And then you're in real trouble. So you have to redefine winning. Okay, so how do you def redefine winning? Winning is the ability to fail and make a quick recovery. The emphasis is not on why you failed or what you failed at. The, the emphasis is on how fast you can recover. And if you can recover quickly, or any time you recover, you've created meaning. And it was, that is, in some ways can be the 
or should be the highest achievement. Highest achievement isn't succeeding. It's not avoiding failure. The highest achievement is to fail and recover quickly, which requires a lot of things, but mostly uh, determination and the the idea that I, I actually can recover from this. Do you think people should take breaks? And if so, what do you think people should do during those breaks? Well, that's a very individualistic thing. The only thing I can tell you about that is it should have some kind of a rejuvenating quality. It should be outside the lines of your business, and it it should give you some kind of pleasure. Usually, I tell people to experiment around, and but and it doesn't have to be the same thing every day. But what it does have to have is some rejuvenation, rejuvenating, you know, capacity. In your age group, the problem is a little bit different. It's not so much taking the time out for most people. It's mistaking or confusing enjoyment or pleasure, distinguishing that from being self-destructive. You know, you're 25 years old, and where I say people get confused about this, they get confused between things that are exciting and challenging and, again, appeal to their ego versus having real pleasure. How, how do you think young people should think about finding a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a husband, or a wife? You know, I'm not claiming to be God, but here, here's what served me really well in helping people, which is there are three qualities that you want the person to have, which is number one is the willingness to sacrifice. Number two is empathy. So empathy means not all the time, but most of the time you want your wife to know what you're feeling not by your telling her it's just that she's empathically focused on you and you should feel the same way towards her that most of the time not all the time but most of the time you should have a sense an empathic sense of what she's going through and people don't like this because to be empathetic you again you have to give up a little bit of your own agenda and almost like flow inside the other person's world uh, it can't be emphasized enough how important that is. And you don't have to be a shrink. In fact, most shrinks aren't even good at it. Initiative means you're taking action steps that tell the other person, I'm interested. Or if you're married to them, I'm still interested. Talking about it isn't enough. You know, there has to be, they have to take a real active role. And this is particularly true at the beginning of a relationship. You know, somebody will tell me, well, this guy called me. I went out with him three times. And, you know, he calls me, but I, I can't tell how he feels. And I'm kind of disappointed. And it's because, and the guy might say, wait, I really like her, whatever. But he failed to take enough of an initiative to make her know that. Or feel it is a better word for it. You know, empathy, initiative, and sacrifice, all of they're meant to work on the level of emotion. So that's a, that's a general thing. If the person has a problem, there are also three metrics that tell you it's worth sticking around with that person, even given their problem. And those are, number one, they have to admit the problem. And you'd be surprised. Half the people who are wanting to admit they're having a problem. Number two, they have to have a plan to solve the problem, a plan. And... That usually that's a shrink, but there are a lot of other ways now. You know, there, there's all the coaching thing, there's twelve step stuff. Religions can help, but you got to have some kind of a plan. And then number three, you have to see some change. You don't have to see them overcome the problem completely, but you you do have to see some progress. So that, those are the metrics in terms of someone's problem. But the other the other three are just true. What do you think are some ineffective things that you've seen? people do around this topic the most ineffective thing they do is they try to 
around with the other person. I just had a case where, and this guy is a big, huge star, you know, but it doesn't matter, you know, he's insecure. He meets this woman he really likes, and she liked him. What she doesn't like is being too vulnerable. So she would keep him at a distance. It's like he'd, he'd say, well, what are we doing this weekend? She'll say, well, let's go to a movie Friday night. He says, great, how about Saturday night? And Saturday night she'll say, no, I can't go Saturday night. Why? Because she's hanging out with her friends. Now, he overreacted to that. He took it as a rejection. It's partially, it's her fault because she's f***ing around. Whatever she wants to see, you know, does he really love me? I don't want to get trapped in this. He's going to make too many demands on me, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, and that particular problem, it's common with women also. You know, you think it's only men that do that. That problem would go under the heading of sacrifice. For her to be available in a reasonable way would be a sacrifice. At least she would think it would be. Why? Because she'd feel more vulnerable, and which would also include under initiative. We've got one final question from the audience. Phil, what is the meaning of life, and why do human beings exist as the only animals who ponder larger self-referential questions? What you'd have to do is draw a big U. Do you guys have a pencil there? Yep. Okay. On the upper end of the U, to your left, write down paradise. You know. Okay. We call the Garden of Eden. Now, that was a state in which human beings could create like a god, like gods. However, they had no individuality at all. They could create anything, but they couldn't hold on to it because they didn't exist as individuals. Right? That's the starting point. So what they call the fall of man, which you can label as the, the downward slope of the you, fall of man, is a fall out of that collective power. That was collective power. And it goes, or mankind ends up in the trough of the you. Now, the trough of the you, that's what they call the fall of man. You lose that collective power to create. You lose it completely. But what you gain by being down there, having fallen, left the garden of you, however you want to say it, is your individuality. Okay, now, so you just left a collective power to gain individuality, gain that, you had to lose your power. Now, so here's the whole trick of the whole thing. Most people think, let's say like Buddhists, they think they got to go back to where they started in the upper left, give up their individuality, and then somehow regain that sort of power. But they're wrong. It, it can't work anymore, which is a long discussion, but it just can't work. The solution is to, to go to the up to the right arm of the you, Got to go up to the right. And that what that involves is both regaining that creative group, collective power in the Garden of Eden, but retaining your individuality. And that's a completely new concept. The human beings exist to fight their way through that you and get up on the other side. And at that point, they've approached the power and the purview of God. That was great. Phil, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you once again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Phil Stutz. Thank you so much again, Phil, for coming on the show. I personally found Phil's background very interesting with some of the issues celebrities and executives face and loved his advice and insight into some tools that can help decisions for people of all ages. You can find all these links in the description. You can also follow your host, Corey Levy, on Twitter at Corey. Thank you once again. We have episodes coming out every Tuesday. Other than that, stay tuned and we'll see you next week on Off Record.